A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post workout snack, choose the farm fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and six times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug use and abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On a warm morning in 1974, Elizabeth Solorio got out of bed with a smile on her face. She stretched and rubbed her growing belly. In just a few months, she would give birth... But before that, she would marry the baby's father, 27-year-old Marcus Wesson. She got up, dressed in an outfit Marcus told her was pretty, and came downstairs to the kitchen. It was hard to keep from bursting with excitement. Today, Marcus would ask her mother for permission to marry her. She imagined the happy future Marcus told her about. The smiling children, the fancy house, and the big church where they could worship together. She eagerly watched him walk into the living room and speak to her mom. Marcus told Rosemary Solorio that he had spoken to God. He was tasked with starting a family to lead humanity to paradise. Rosemary nodded solemnly, ready to do as he asked. They already had one child together, and she was willing to grow their family as much as God commanded. But Marcus wasn't finished. God had not chosen Rosemary to be the matriarch of the new family. He wanted her 15-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. Rosemary was shocked. Elizabeth was too young to be a bride, to be a mother. Marcus shook his head. Her teenage daughter was pregnant with his child. They would be married soon, with or without her blessing. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we take a look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. Today, we're taking a deep dive into the vampire cult, founded by Marcus Wesson. His demented beliefs resulted in the psychological and sexual abuse of over a dozen of his own children between 1974 and 2004. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Marcus Wesson began his cultic family in 1974, when he was 27. His large, incestuous family started when he impregnated his girlfriend's daughter, 15-year-old Elizabeth Solario. By 2004, Marcus had 18 biological children and had adopted several others. They were taught a corrupted form of Christianity with Marcus and a vampiric Jesus Christ at the center. The children were brainwashed, isolated from society, and physically and sexually abused. As his family expanded, Marcus became more unhinged. In 2004, relatives of his wife called the police to attempt to rescue the abused children. But before police could enter the house, Marcus killed nine of his sons and daughters. This week, we'll focus on the early life of Marcus Wesson, as well as the beginnings of the disturbing family he created. In part two, we'll broaden our focus to the increasing psychological and sexual abuse of the children in the vampire cult. We'll learn how Marcus brainwashed his children and how the police investigation uncovered his crimes. Marcus Wesson was born in Kansas City, Kansas on August 22, 1946. He was the eldest of four siblings. His mother, Carrie Wesson, was an avid member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, a Protestant Christian sect. She brought Marcus and his siblings to church every Saturday, without exception. Carrie led nightly prayer sessions with her children. She even wrote her own kid-friendly interpretations of the Bible to teach them. She was very strict and regularly screamed at her children for hours if they misbehaved. Marcus's father, Ben Wesson, was an abusive alcoholic. He spent all of the family's money on liquor, and as a result, the Wessons were frequently evicted when they couldn't make rent. At night, Ben got drunk and was subject to wild mood swings. Marcus's sister, Cheryl, later recalled her father getting in a violent, drunken fight with a stranger at a bar. His neck was slashed by a knife. He was brought home covered in blood and nearly died in front of her. When he wasn't violent, Ben became extremely overly affectionate. Cheryl did not claim Ben molested her, but did say he would just hug and kiss all the time. You'd have to kind of run up the stairs or something. Several of Marcus's childhood friends were assaulted by Ben. One friend, Gregory Bledsoe, stated that when he was a teenager, Ben asked to perform a sexual act on him. When Gregory said no, Ben offered the boy $50 and he relented. The memory caused Gregory shame for years afterward. On another occasion, when Gregory was sleeping over at Marcus's house, he woke up to find Ben trying to pull his pants down. Gregory told Ben to leave, and the man scurried away. Gregory kept the incident to himself out of embarrassment, and Ben didn't come on to him after that. Marcus's unpredictable father and strict mother created a turbulent home life. When he was young, Marcus was introverted and awkward in social situations. He made few friends other than his siblings and had a severe stutter. 
Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. The abuse Marcus suffered at the hands of his parents likely contributed to his social trouble early in life. Dr. Frederick Wolverton, the director of a psychotherapy institute, wrote, Most speech defects are actually outward manifestations of childhood trauma. Marcus's introversion made him seem uninterested in people for the most part. But he was drawn to animals, especially dogs. Once, he found a scrawny, starving dog collapsed in the street. He carried the dog home and was determined to revive it, insisting he heard a heartbeat. Marcus gave the dog a bath and stayed up with it all night, giving it milk. By morning, the dog was up and moving around again. He saved its life. His interest in dogs wasn't altogether altruistic, however. Gregory remembered him bringing a strange-looking dog to class one day. Marcus bred two neighborhood dogs because he was curious about what their offspring would look like. In 1956, when Marcus was 10, the Wesson family moved to San Jose, California. As he grew up, Marcus started to come out of his shell. He joined the track team in high school and was a star athlete. Most of his classmates and teachers recognized him as intelligent, but he neglected his homework and did not have good grades. In his teens, Marcus was also able to overcome his speech impediment. He started to talk to his classmates more. They were surprised to discover the quiet boy's temerity. He had extremely strong opinions and held to them stubbornly. Even as a teenager, Marcus formulated his own opinions on spiritual matters, at odds with the Seventh-day Adventist church he was raised in. He proclaimed publicly that he believed in polygamy, against the church's doctrine. He told his friends on several occasions that he hoped to have multiple wives one day. Marcus dropped out of high school in his senior year. In 1966, at the age of 19, he joined the U.S. Army. He trained as a medic and drove an ambulance during the Vietnam War. Two years later, in 1968, Marcus was honorably discharged. He went back home to live with his parents and began attending community college in San Jose. But while he was in Vietnam, a lot had changed at home. Around the time Marcus was discharged, some cousins and his paternal grandmother moved to San Jose from Alabama. They fell on hard financial times and moved in with the Wessons. The small home was very crowded. Marcus's father, Ben, now close to 50 years old, started to spend more and more time with his nephew, 18-year-old Larry Morgan. Larry was Marcus's cousin, the estranged son of Ben's brother, raised by his and Marcus's grandmother. After several months, Ben shocked the family by announcing that he and Larry were moving out together. Ben left his wife of over 20 years for his nephew. The men bought a small house in San Jose. Marcus's mother cut off all contact with Ben, and no one in the family saw him for years afterward. The story caused a scandal in the small neighborhood. The Wesson family were targets of malicious rumors at church and social events, which even made its way to Marcus's college campus. After less than a year at the school, he dropped out, in part because of the constant gossip about him and his family. The same year he returned to San Jose, 21-year-old Marcus met 34-year-old Rosemary Solorio through a friend. Soon, the two started dating. 
Rosemary was married with six kids, but separated from her husband. After Marcus dropped out of college, he lived with her, subsisting on welfare. After Marcus moved in with Rosemary, he seemed content to scrape by without a job. He showed no interest in working and refused to find employment any time Rosemary brought it up. As a result, Rosemary, the children, and Marcus lived in precarious conditions. Marcus stole what he needed, sometimes bringing one of Rosemary's kids with him to distract security guards. He took total control over the household. He insisted the whole family switch to a vegetarian diet in accordance with his religious beliefs. He was hard on the children, especially the boys, and physically abused them if they misbehaved. Marcus's willingness to physically abuse children who weren't his own likely had roots in his own upbringing. According to psychiatrist Dr. David Allen, the majority of abused children do not go on to abuse their own children. Many become model parents. But we do know that most severely abusive parents were themselves abused as children. Marcus suffered physical and possibly sexual abuse at the hands of his father. He was subjected to emotional abuse from his mother. This may have convinced him that children required harsh discipline. Dr. Allen also wrote, My ideas about the nature of the role these folks are playing in their dysfunctional families is speculative. My guess is that victims or survivors of significant abuse secretly want to think that their families are not as sick or evil as the abuse might suggest. In a sense, they're trying to normalize and depathologize their parents' abusive behavior. The way Marcus took over raising Rosemary's children mirrored his own upbringing. He led Bible studies several times a week, sometimes using the same texts his mother had used. During Bible study, he became an entirely different person. He reverently read scripture and interpreted it for the family. He was patient and kind when the children asked questions. The kids, especially the boys, were surprised to see the man soften from a short-tempered authoritarian to a caring teacher. At first, his interpretations were mostly in line with the teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But as time went on, he mixed his own dogma into the readings that diverged farther and farther from the scripture. But the way he spoke and his seemingly endless knowledge of the Bible lent his unique interpretations weight. Many times, the family did not even realize that what he said about polygamy or the relationship between a husband and wife was radically different from the mainstream church's doctrines. Privately, Marcus spent even more time speaking with Rosemary about the Bible and his special relationship with God. Eventually, he told her he spoke with God and was chosen to be a prophet. Rosemary was awed. He seemed so sure of himself, and she wanted to believe that God's chosen one had in turn chosen her to be his mate. Her belief in Marcus allowed him to take further control of the family. After two years, Rosemary was pregnant with Marcus's child. She gave birth to a son, Adair, in 1971, when Marcus was 25 and she was 37. After Adair was born, Marcus argued with Rosemary more and more. He was fanatical. He determined when the family ate, what they watched on TV, and when they went out. His insistence that he was a prophet meant he refused to admit guilt for anything he did. He claimed every action he took was ordained by God. 
Over time, Rosemary's will was beaten down. She was afraid Marcus would get violent if she defied him and worried about her young children. As the years went on, it became easier and easier to let Marcus's iron grip take over. By 1973, two years after Adair was born, Marcus stopped showing affection to Rosemary altogether. Instead, he started to groom their daughter, 14-year-old Elizabeth. The relationship became sexual within months. Soon after, Marcus asked Rosemary for permission to marry her now pregnant daughter. Coming up, Rosemary Solorio must decide whether to allow her boyfriend to marry her teenage daughter. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now, back to the story. In 1974, 41-year-old Rosemary Solorio stood mouth agape in her kitchen, her 27-year-old boyfriend and spiritual advisor, Marcus Wesson, had asked for permission to marry her 15-year-old daughter. Rosemary's first reaction was disgust. But Marcus could be very persuasive. He had unshakable confidence and an authoritative air that drew people to him. In a flash, he could turn from a caring and generous figure to a hard, violent patriarch. Marcus's superficial charm and self-regard are common markers of antisocial personality disorder. As criminal psychologist Dr. Robert Hare wrote, these individuals at times appear to be cold and unemotional while nevertheless being prone to dramatic, shallow, and short-lived displays of feeling. Marcus's mood swings were a constant source of stress for those in the household. At times, he was an insightful and loving preacher who the children loved. But if something small set him off, he suddenly became a violent abuser. When Marcus revealed Elizabeth was pregnant with his child, Rosemary agreed to let Marcus marry the girl, as long as he kept it secret from the rest of the family. But the secret couldn't be kept for long, as Elizabeth's pregnant belly became visible. One of Rosemary's teenage sons, Jesse, was revolted when he found out. Jesse had been the most combative with Marcus ever since he moved in, and by far faced the worst of his physical abuse. Jesse started an argument with Marcus, 
In response, Marcus used an electrical cord as a whip, striking the boy so many times that it left permanent scars. A few days later, one of Jesse's family members on his father's side called the police about the abuse. The cops arrived that night and pounded on the door. Marcus saw the blue and red lights through the window and knew he had to act fast. Before he answered the door, he called Jesse into the living room. Marcus made a quick deal with him. If the boy promised to keep his mouth shut about the abuse, Marcus would leave the house with Elizabeth and never return. Considering the violence Jesse and his other siblings had faced for the last four years, he thought it was a good deal. Rosemary also pleaded with Jesse to get rid of the police to keep the family out of trouble. Jesse agreed. But after the police left, Marcus did not go quietly. At the last second, he changed the terms of the agreement and insisted he needed Rosemary's van, too. It was the family's only form of transportation. This was the last straw for Jesse, and he attacked. A bitter fight ensued. Marcus beat the boy so savagely that Jesse grabbed a screwdriver and held it to Marcus's throat. He swore if Marcus hit him again, he would stab him. Marcus could see the rage in Jesse's eyes and knew he was serious. He backed down and left with Elizabeth. They moved into Marcus's mother, Carrie's house. By this time, Carrie was used to scandal. It had been almost eight years since she had spoken to her husband, and she feared a falling out with Marcus would mean losing more of her family. She let her son and Elizabeth stay in the house, but held them to strict dietary and religious rules. The second Elizabeth and Marcus caused any trouble, she warned, they would be out on the street. Contrary to his behavior when he lived with Rosemary, Marcus was meek around his mother. He still ordered Elizabeth around, but was not nearly as violent, and the housing situation worked for a while. In mid-1974, Marcus married Elizabeth with her mother's permission. He was 27, and Elizabeth was 15. The situation changed a few months later, after Elizabeth gave birth to a son named Dorian. Carrie became increasingly uncomfortable. She did not like the way her son lazed about all day without a job. She feared her complacency was making him too much like his father. In an attempt at tough love, she kicked Marcus, Elizabeth, and Dorian out. She told Marcus things wouldn't improve for him unless he got a job. For the sake of her grandchild, she begged him to find work. Surprisingly, Marcus took her advice. He and Elizabeth moved into a house nearby, and Marcus managed to get a job as a teller at the local Wells Fargo. He shaved his unruly beard and cut his hair. Though he maintained his authoritarian temperament at home, at work he became a new man and a reliable employee. Elizabeth and Marcus settled into a comfortable routine. By the time Elizabeth was 19, she had given birth to another son and two daughters. Her fifth child passed away during childbirth. From the moment the children were born, Marcus treated them harshly. He did not tolerate crying, even when they were only a couple of weeks old. When the babies cried, he ordered Elizabeth to discipline them. To do this, he gave her a stick that was half an inch thick. He insisted she spank the children on the rear and the bottoms of their feet until they quieted. It hurt Elizabeth to spank the babies, and she often cried while doing it. 
But she knew she had to listen to Marcus. If she didn't, he would take the babies into the bedroom and spank them himself. He was not kind when dispatching punishment. Marcus's short temper only got worse the longer he worked as a bank teller. He grew more frustrated by his job every day. He bristled at being told what to do and railed against the staid environment of the bank. In 1977, 31-year-old Marcus reached his breaking point. He longed for his days with Rosemary, when he was unemployed and had total freedom. He quit his job and went back on welfare. He grew dreadlocks and a large beard. Elizabeth didn't give any objections when he quit. She had been groomed to listen to Marcus unquestioningly since she was nine years old. As psychology professor Dr. Elizabeth Jeglick wrote, abusive groomers work to gain the trust of the victims so that they can engage in the abuse without detection. This makes the children feel special and gives them the belief that they have a caring relationship with the perpetrators. Marcus capitalized on Elizabeth's vulnerability as a child and tricked her into believing they had a special relationship when really he just wanted her to be his servant. In keeping with his own upbringing, Marcus took the family to the local Seventh-day Adventist church every Saturday. He took on the same role his mother had as a spiritual counselor for the family. He read scripture to Elizabeth and the children, and again mixed church doctrine with his own hard-line beliefs about everything from polygamy to the afterlife. One night when the family attended church in October of 1978, 32-year-old Marcus spotted a new attendee in the pews. Her name was Illabel Lee. She was a young, pregnant woman, about 16 years old. She had recently run away from home after a fight with her parents about her pregnancy. The two started spending time together. According to Illabel, at that point I was looking for something to depend on, someone to trust, and Marcus was someone I could trust. Marcus spent long hours listening to Illabel and offering her advice. He had an intense way of speaking to people as if they were the only ones in the world. As time went on, Marcus slowly doled out revelations in the same way he hooked Rosemary and Elizabeth. His counsel began as practical advice. Then, once he had Illabel's trust, he expanded on his ideals, eventually reaching the point where he called himself God's chosen prophet. His serious attitude and well-spoken charm drew Illabel in. He was supportive and spoke with an authority that made the 16-year-old want to believe in him. So when he counseled her to stop contacting her unborn baby's father, she listened. Illabel slowly cut out the few remaining members of her support network at Marcus's advice. She gave up on reconciling with her parents. She lived alone in an apartment not far from Marcus and Elizabeth's house. After a few months, she was entirely dependent on Marcus for emotional support. Relationship expert Darlene Lancer highlighted emotional and physical isolation as key components of abusive relationships. She wrote that abusers are often possessive and are unable to accept blame for their actions. Illabel experienced these qualities firsthand with Marcus. Marcus devoted considerable time to Illabel and guided her through her pregnancy. She gave birth in 1979, and he helped her with that, too. 
Then, in December of 1979, several months after Illabel's baby had been born, their relationship progressed. Marcus had always been physically close with Illabel and often hugged her during their long, deep talks. But on this night, at Illabel's apartment, Marcus went beyond his usual hug. He kissed her and then undressed. He told 16-year-old Illabel he loved her, and the two had sex. The liaisons continued for a few months before Elizabeth found out. Unsurprisingly, Elizabeth did not like the new development, but by now she had been living under Marcus's thumb for almost 12 years, since she was nine years old. He knew exactly how to manipulate her, and she rarely went against his wishes. Still, she told Marcus she could never accept being second place to another woman. Marcus assured Elizabeth his devotion to her would always take precedence. He insisted that, should his relationship with Illabel continue, it would never distract him from his family and children at home. After weeks of persistent needling, Elizabeth reluctantly consented to Marcus's sexual relationship with Illabel. She stipulated that he could never get Illabel pregnant, however, and Marcus promised they would only have oral sex. This arrangement continued for years. During this time, as his children were getting older, Marcus became more eccentric than ever before. He was still obsessed with the idea of having multiple wives and frequently ranted about the biblical legitimacy of the concept. He closed his family off from the outside world to cement his control over them. The longer he kept them isolated, the more tyrannical he became. He started exempting himself from rules he forced the rest of the family to follow. They still had to eat vegetarian, but he could eat meat. He used the family's meager finances to eat at restaurants, while his children went out at night to collect food from dumpsters. Establishing vague rules and bending them arbitrarily is a common tactic of authoritarians. As psychotherapist Dr. Eric Maisel noted, Authoritarians love rules for other people. The more quixotic and unclear the rules, the better, since quixotic, unclear rules are the least possible to follow. For an authoritarian, the rules are there to be broken so that punishment can follow. During the day, his wife and children were at his beck and call and frequently punished. He then subjected them to lengthy sermons, which increasingly diverged from conventional church doctrine. He asserted that the priests and church hierarchy were all corrupt. He claimed they had strayed from God's true word and given in to an immoral society. He criticized the church for not preaching about the second coming of Jesus Christ enough. He told his children the apocalypse was so close that they would probably never have time to grow up, get married, or move away. The children were homeschooled in a curriculum that focused on these ideas, along with requirements to read and memorize scripture. The Bible was interpreted with the help of Marcus's bizarre handwritten personal writings, which he expanded upon and refined over the years. His doctrine grew more heretical than any beliefs Marcus expressed to his friends. Besides designating himself as God's final prophet, Marcus shared new epiphanies with his wife and children. According to Marcus, Jesus Christ was an immortal vampire. He allowed his apostles to drink his blood to achieve immortality. 
Marcus raised his children to believe that God Almighty had designated him as a second god. They believed he was the last in a long succession of vampires destined to lead the family to paradise when Jesus returned to earth. The world would end soon in a blaze of fire and brimstone, and non-believers would be sent to hell. Marcus forced the children to remain indoors almost all the time. He told them public schools, police officers, and other authority figures were dangerous. He said all these people worked for Satan, and they wanted to stop him from leading the children to heaven. One day, he claimed, they would try to destroy the family and steal their souls. The only way to protect the family, in Marcus's view, was to expand it. In 1980, when he was 34 and Elizabeth was 22, Elizabeth gave birth to another son, Almay Wesson. He brought their total number of children to five. Their oldest child, Dorian, was now five years old. Soon, the family Marcus had worked so hard to control would be on the verge of fracture. Coming up, Marcus shows rare compassion when one of his children is put in danger. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Now, back to the story. In 1980, 34-year-old Marcus Wesson lived with his wife, 21-year-old Elizabeth Wesson, and five children in San Jose, California. Marcus's bizarre religious dogma, which included believing Jesus Christ was a vampire, brought the family closer and closer to complete isolation as the years went on. Despite his self-absorption, Marcus wasn't completely devoid of empathy. Late in 1980, while the family was driving down the highway, his second oldest son, Adrian, had an accident. The four-year-old boy was fiddling with the lock on the back door and accidentally opened it while the car was moving. He tumbled out the door and onto the highway. Marcus pulled over and slammed on the brakes. But before anyone could reach Adrian, a semi-truck ran right over the boy. After the truck passed, Marcus rushed into the street to retrieve his son. It seemed he had been clipped by some part of the truck's undercarriage, but was remarkably not hit by the wheels. Marcus took Adrian to the emergency room and stayed up with him all night. He wept for the boy and pleaded with the doctors. Luckily, Adrian recovered without any permanent damage. Marcus frequently brought up Adrian's miraculous survival as a sign of God's blessings upon him and his family. 
Marcus truly felt he had been deemed special by God. He believed he was the only one capable of accurately interpreting the Bible. As part of his status as God's chosen, he worked hard at shaping the family to his specifications. Elizabeth gave birth about once a year, and she had two more children between 1980 and 1982. Meanwhile, Marcus's relationship with 19-year-old Illabel Lee had not stopped. In 1982, three years after their affair began, he convinced Elizabeth to allow him to take the relationship to the next level. He sent Illabel a somewhat incoherent letter, inviting her to become his second wife and handmaiden to Elizabeth. Marcus again compared himself to God to justify getting what he wanted. He wrote in part, Illabel, you, Liz, and all the children are my kingdom. Christ has many individual marriages, but together they are his kingdom. According to Marcus, since Christ had many families and groups of people who were all a part of his larger kingdom, it was appropriate for him to have many wives. In his ideal world, his kingdom would include all of his wives and their individual families. Illabel, for her part, was deeply in love with Marcus, but she felt inferior to Elizabeth. She learned that if she agreed to be Marcus's second wife, she would also be expected to do whatever Elizabeth asked. She later said, He cherished her, and he didn't cherish me. I was supposed to be Elizabeth's servant or something. My relationship with him was secondary. Illabel declined the offer because she craved more commitment for Marcus. But she didn't break things off entirely. She was still completely emotionally dependent on him. She worried that if she stopped having sex with him or letting him borrow money, that she would be left to raise her child all alone. Marcus cultivated Illabel's insecurity by making sure she knew Elizabeth was better than her, another strategy of abusive men. As psychotherapist Michael Formica wrote, this victim is also morbidly insecure. She also has little sense of her own social value, but makes an effort to establish that value by losing herself to the demand for submission. It can be a difficult state of mind to break away from. But a year after declining to be Marcus's second wife, 20-year-old Illabel finally ended the relationship in 1983. She bought a car with the assistance of her brother and left California for good without telling Marcus goodbye. Marcus took Illabel's departure hard. He resented Elizabeth for not allowing him to take his relationship with Illabel further early on. He had been close to achieving his longtime fantasy of having multiple wives, but he didn't give up on the idea. He just learned he needed to be more careful in the future not to arouse Elizabeth's jealousy. Ultimately, Marcus blamed societal norms and the outside world for Illabel leaving. He decided to separate his family from society even more. With saved welfare checks and some lies to the bank, Marcus secured a loan and bought a small tract of land in the Santa Cruz Mountains, about 30 miles from San Jose. The family of nine lived in a small, pre-constructed house on the land. There, they spent long hours studying scripture with Marcus. At this point, even Elizabeth rarely left the property. Marcus frequently went into town for hours without explaining where he had gone, leaving her with the kids. This new change didn't last long, however. 
Marcus failed to pay the mortgage, and in less than a year, by 1984, the house and the land were repossessed. Marcus then moved his family to Fresno, California. There, they reconnected with some of Elizabeth's siblings. None of them had seen Marcus or Elizabeth in 10 years. Elizabeth's sister lived in a duplex along with some of Elizabeth's cousins. Marcus's first child, Adair, who he had with Elizabeth's mother, Rosemary, also lived there. After so long, the siblings were happy to reconnect. Hard feelings had disappeared. Elizabeth's brothers, who had suffered the brunt of Marcus's abuse, lived on their own, outside of the duplex. Elizabeth and Marcus convinced their estranged relatives to let them move in downstairs. None of the adults in the house had jobs. After a few months, the rest of the tenants passed portions of their welfare checks on to Marcus to pay him for homeschooling the children. He also led the entire family in Bible study three times a week. The rest of the family was inspired by Marcus to undergo a religious revival, and they approved of his teachings. He changed the diets of his nieces and nephews and made them dress in long, modest skirts and pants. He disciplined them by hitting them with a stick wrapped in duct tape. No one complained lest they face Marcus's wrath. He was the unquestioned leader of the house, and after all these years, Elizabeth still believed he would lead them all to paradise. Acquaintances of the family at this time described the Wesson children as a group of unsettling robots. They didn't speak unless spoken to, never complained or cried, and were unfailingly polite. They didn't seem like normal, happy-go-lucky kids. One friend of the family heard the children refer to Marcus as master on several occasions. As the years went on, the family pulled their welfare and scraped by. Elizabeth had two more children, Serafino and Lise, by 1986, when Marcus was 40 years old. This brought the family total to nine children. Marcus continued to expand on his spiritual writings and focused most of his efforts on brainwashing the children. His methods had much in common with other manipulative cults. Psychoanalyst Stanley Kath has said, often cults set up a we-they philosophy. We have the truth and you do not. Marcus emphasized his sole possession of spiritual truth on a daily basis. The children referred to him as a second god or lord during prayers. He railed against the heresy and immorality of established religious groups, like the Catholic Church, and insisted he had a monopoly on religious truth. He was the only one truly listening when God spoke. The next victim of Marcus's abuse was his niece, Sophina. She was one of the extended family whom Marcus tutored, the daughter of Elizabeth's sister. Soon after her 12th birthday in 1986, 40-year-old Marcus began molesting Safina. He told her he did this to all his daughters. He claimed that, though society looked down on it, he was doing it for her own good. He said his daughters needed to know how to please a man to prepare them for marriage. At the same time, Marcus segregated the boys from the girls. He worried they would develop sexual feelings for each other and threaten his influence. He gave the boys much greater freedom than the girls. They could play outside, while the girls had to ask permission even to go into the backyard. Even with his precautions and strict rules, 41-year-old Marcus still felt life in town was corrupting his kids. 
In 1987, he decided to move his family to the wilderness to cut them off from the impurities of the outside world. He now planned to purchase a boat, which he hoped to sail around the world with his children one day. That year, Marcus moved to Santa Cruz with his children. He also brought the children of Elizabeth's sister, including Sophina. The sister didn't like Marcus, but felt her children would be better off in a stable, religious environment. She had been boxed out of her children's lives ever since she refused to abide by Marcus's strict rules and was not aware of the extent of the abuse. Altogether, Marcus and Elizabeth left Fresno with 16 children. The youngest was two years old, the oldest 13. Around this time, Marcus purchased a small houseboat in Santa Cruz Harbor. He paid its former owner $500 per month using his welfare checks. The deal was kept quiet as using his benefit money to buy the boat violated the terms of the welfare. Marcus convinced a friend he knew from church, Stoney Burnett, to purchase the boat in his name so that the arrangement would not be discovered. Owning the boat did not make his children's lives any easier. It was a small vessel and could only comfortably sleep four people. The family of 18 had to sleep in shifts or else crowd together in unworkably packed conditions. Marcus's short-term solution was to move his children into a dilapidated school bus that lay in an abandoned lot near the harbor. He kept the children working day and night to refurbish the bus with spare parts and tools he stole from hardware stores. In time, the bus was converted into a makeshift RV, but it was far from luxurious. Children slept across the seats, but had little in terms of heating or air conditioning. Running water and electricity remained out of reach. Residents around Santa Cruz Harbor frequently complained about the Wessons. They saw the family taking food from dumpsters at night. Several fast food restaurants called the police after the Wessons bathed in public bathrooms and clogged the sinks. The children collected aluminum cans to sell at the recycling plant. For Marcus's part, the years only made him stranger. His dreadlocks now reached the middle of his back. He took to wearing a ratty brown cloak and carrying a walking stick. He prowled the streets, occasionally sermonizing in explosive tones about God's grace and mankind's lost perfection. One town resident described him as a frustrated cult leader who was ignored by most people. Concerned citizens called Child Protective Services several times, but they were unable to keep up with the nomadic family. After one visit, the Wesson family disappeared into the mountains for weeks, and CPS could never conduct a follow-up interview. One of Marcus's more incomprehensible tactics to avoid the law was to call the Welfare Office, or CPS, and impersonate obscure actor Richard Widmark. Widmark acted in Hollywood crime films in the 1940s and 50s. It's unclear why Marcus thought the actor's name would grant him access to privileged government information, but he tried it repeatedly. His own explanation failed to shed any light on his logic, but did show that the gambit occasionally succeeded. According to Marcus, by pretending to be Widmark, he received advance notice that the tax assessor was going to place a lien on his boat. He stated, 
I, posing as Richard Widmark, called the tax office just three days before I received the notice. I posed as the actor because I wanted to find out why the boat was in Marcus Wesson's name instead of my wife's name. He later called the same office to argue, as Widmark, that Marcus Wesson could not pay the lien because he was on welfare. He also repeatedly called the harbormaster, who he owed thousands of dollars in docking fees, to try and escape his debt. After a year in the bus and on the boat, Marcus's children pleaded for more comfortable accommodations. Marcus dreamt up yet another scam to keep his family moving. In 1988, at the age of 42, Marcus made an arrangement with a local landowner outside of Santa Cruz. The man, A.J. Wheeler, agreed to rent out a quarter of an acre of unoccupied land in the mountains. In return for monthly payments of $500, the family was allowed to camp on the land and eventually own it outright. It's unknown how Marcus got the money each month to pay for both the boat and land, but it is clear that part of the deal involved keeping his name off the official deed for the land, probably to avoid a conviction for welfare fraud. As he would discover, his scams were far from foolproof. The state of California noticed a discrepancy in his boat's ownership paperwork and launched an inquiry. For the first time, Marcus faced legal scrutiny and a possible prison sentence he couldn't wriggle his way out of. He had managed to evade CPS by moving his children around, but couldn't risk losing his welfare benefits. Those checks were all that kept the family afloat. Marcus was forced to lawyer up and come to court. He cut his hair, shaved his beard, and showed up to his trial an entirely different person. Marcus saw his legal battle as a challenge from the system he had spurned his entire life. He would do anything to maintain his hegemony over his family, which would soon lead to unspeakable depravity. The reign of Marcus Wesson as Lord of the Vampire Cult would not be stopped. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back with part two on Marcus Wesson next Tuesday. We'll see how his efforts to enlarge his family led to an increasingly bizarre and disgusting situation. Finally, we'll examine the dramatic events that led to the brutal murders of nine of the Wesson children in a violent standoff with police. You can find more episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by David Turk, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Cults was written by Terrell Wells and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 